By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of, the, of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has, has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. We're going to be talking about the reliability of God's love and how great God's love is for us and how much assurance we get out of that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get into tonight's teaching. Heavenly Father, God, thank you again for the love that you have for us. It is so great and so big, and we're so thankful. Thankful for your spirit thankful for giving us um, power that we don't even know we have. Help us to discern how to use that power and how to speak into the lives of people in this church and outside this church. Help us to love people well. Help us to love our brothers and our sisters and know your commandments and do them well because we love you. Thank you so much for tonight and uh, pray, God, that you would speak through me and touch people's lives. Uh, in your son Jesus' name, amen. So on Monday of this last week, I went to a financial planner. Yeah. Are you a financial planner? Okay, great. Well, I went to a financial planner. We may, we may need to talk after the service. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about my retirement account, because I have one. Um, and when the company that I used to work for like, was sold, they didn't give me a retirement account, so I just had this account kind of sitting there, not really doing anything. So I had to figure out what to do with it. And so I had to move the money into a different type of account. And so Monday, I found myself sitting with this lady, bright and early, talking about mutual funds. And we were using a lot of terms that I didn't fully understand. And she pulled out a piece of paper, and she laid out this paper in front of me and highlighted two areas and said, this is the fund that you should put your money in. And I was like, all right, cool. This is going to be easy. And she highlighted the date with which the fund was created. And then she highlighted the, um, she highlighted the, the ranking of the fund. Because apparently people rate mutual funds. I didn't know this. Like there's a whole organization that takes care of all this for us and it makes it a lot easier. And so she said, this is a great fund. Look at this graph. It shows continual growth. You will do great with this. You should put some of your money here. And I said, okay, great. Sounds good. 
And then she told me the unfortunate news that I could, she could not be my financial planner because I don't have enough money. So there you go. So that's why we may, we may need to talk after, after the service. But what she was saying when she put that piece of paper before me was that this fund was reliable. And she was selling me on the idea of reliability, essentially saying that it has a proven track record, that it can be trusted, that I can put my money here and I can get a return on it so I can have some ROI, which is always nice. But those track records aren't created overnight. It took a long time for them to get there. This fund was started in the 60s. It's been, it's been there for a long time. And that's why I guess it, had, it was reliable. Um, I hope this isn't my carburetor, John. Uh, <laughs> jolly. Um, and then when, the thing is, is that the reliability of anything, whether it's a product or a mutual fund or anything, um, is based upon how well delivers, right? How well that person or product delivers on what was promised. If you're looking for a return on investment, did it do that? And so when we look at the broader story of the Bible, one of the things that we do is we get to realize the importance of God's promises. And many of those promises were made well before Jesus was even on the earth. The promise in the garden, we've talked about this before, promise in the garden that there would be a child that would be born and that would one day crush the head of the serpent that had just tempted Adam and Eve. That that child would overcome Satan. There was Noah who was in the middle of a world that had wholly turned against God. And God approached Noah and asked him to build an ark. And Noah had faith and he did what God said to do. And God's promise was that he would never again do what he was about to do in flooding the earth. And the promise for Noah was a new beginning. And Noah's responsibility was to have that new beginning, was to repopulate the earth. There was a guy named Abram, and the promise for him was simple. Get up, move your family, because God had planned on making him into a great nation. Despite his age, despite his ability to even have kids, despite having never even known who God was, he had faith and he listened and he went. For King David, the promise was this, that the Savior, the Messiah, would come through his lineage and that one day his kingdom would be established forever. For John the Baptist, it was promised that he would prepare the way for the Messiah, that he would be a prophet, that he would baptize people with water, but there would be another guy that would come and baptize people with the Spirit, a person who was greater than him. And then for Jesus, the promise was that he would be the Messiah. The promise was that a son would be born, and he would carry the sins of the world, and he would be the one promised in the garden. He would be the one that was to be a descendant of Abraham and in the lineage of King David. In Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, we, we uh, hear, Faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of the things not seen. And for by it, people of the old received their commendation. Essentially saying that these people had faith and did what God asked of them. And it is in the fulfillment of the promises of God that we find ourselves able to rely on him 
And at the same time, we find ourselves able to rely on God's love. In the beginning, I read John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And that Son would go to the cross, and that Son would die for the sins of the world. And in the person of Jesus, we have the Messiah. And the promises of old that were made to those people were kept by God. And so for John, in this section of 1 John, his appeal to us is that we can rely on the love that God has for us because he keeps his promises throughout time. Um, We're going to put the verses on the screen because for my study, I didn't use the ESV. I know it's heresy here. I use the NIV because I feel like it's a little bit easier to understand what is actually happening here. And so don't, you know, be upset. It's just what happened. Um, So I'm going to read it in a second, and we'll go from there. So 1 John 4, 13 through 17 says, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. The reliability of God's love provides us with assurance. Prior to Jesus' time on earth, uh, God's Spirit would come and go, but it was never poured out. It was never really fully unleashed. And John's first appeal to us is that we can have reliability in God's love through his Spirit. Now, after the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, fulfilling God's promise, in Acts, Peter references Joel when he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Essentially, the love of God rests on the fulfillment of the the promise from the Father that the spirit would be given, and that through the spirit we would have the ability to discern and to feel and to see and to understand God's will in a very palpable way. And in the case of the church that John is writing to, where there were false prophets running around spreading heresy, real heresy, uh, these Christians would be given the ability to tell the difference between those who were true and those who weren't. And likewise, for us today, we get the ability, through the Spirit, to tell what is true and to tell what is not. John's second appeal to the reliability of of God's love is the fact that they have seen and were willing to testify that Jesus was the Savior of the world. I have to tell you, I kind of geeked out a little bit on this because, I don't know, it was, it was fun. So in the Old Testament law, throughout Jesus' ministry and in Paul's teaching, there is one thing that they all have in common. There was a certain, a certain threshold that had to be met for any eyewitness testimony to be legally valid. In the book of Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall the charge be established. So both 
Paul and Jesus used this standard that came from the Old Testament. For Jesus' part, he acknowledged in John 5, 31, when he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But then in that same chapter, Jesus goes on to appeal to the testimony of John the Baptist. And he goes on to appeal to the testimony of the scriptures, particularly those written by Moses, and then the greater testimony of the Father. Nevertheless, there was consensus that this was the standard. But it wasn't only um, important for the law, but it was also important in Greco-Roman culture for historians. And that's when John was alive, and John is appealing to himself and to the rest of the apostles when he says that they were eyewitnesses. John, far above any of the other writers of the New Testament, thought highly of bearing witness to the truth that Jesus was the Savior of the world. In fact, John uses the word witness, which in Greek is the word, let's see if I get this right, matureo, in his gospel more than any other New Testament book, the Gospel of John. And you might notice something about the word matureo. It sounds a little bit like the word martyr. That is actually where the word martyr got its meaning. Because as time went on, and as that word developed into Latin and then developed into the English, or Old English, it was pronounced martyr. And what it meant was it was someone who was willing to bear witness to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ unto death. So when Jesus was walking the earth and throughout history, there were tons of people that saw him. There were tons of people that witnessed all of the things that he did. And John and the apostles believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises from the past. At their peril in a world that was not friendly to them and not friendly to the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. They would stand trial for this. They were ordered to stop preaching because of this. An order that they did not oblige, by the way. They continued despite what the authorities at the time wanted. And the promises of old and their fulfillment in Jesus were important to John because they were willing to testify that it was the truth. They were willing to stake their reputations on it. They were willing to stake their lives on it. They were willing to die for it, and many of them did. The third appeal to the reliability of God's love is one of a personal nature. If you're responding to the Spirit, if you're willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, then there's assurance that God lives in you. Uh, Prior to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, faith was placed in the promises of God, and assurance was granted. And the people of old in the Old Testament were so convinced they were willing to do crazy things, like build an ark, or listen to a guy that they'd never heard, this audible voice, and go do stuff. It was nuts. But now that the Holy Spirit is fully accessible, 
we're called to faithfully rely on it because it's there to help us. And so assurance for us comes from the fulfillment of the Messiah and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that was promised in the book of Joel. Now, prior to Jesus, there was this kind of unbridgeable gap between God and man that required continual sacrifice. But then Jesus became the sacrifice once and for all. And so that continual sacrifice was no longer necessary in the way that it used to be in the Old Testament. The question that we have to ask for ourselves as people in the church is, are we interested in who Jesus claims he is? And are we interested in who John claims Jesus is? I remember when I was younger, um, there was this guy and he was in a band. And he was the lead singer of this band and they were kind of popular and they would come and go through Tucson. They weren't from here. But I specifically remember there was this almost legendary status about this guy because he would kind of stand outside the club and all of us 15 and 16-year-olds who were at punk shows downtown, before downtown was cool, we would uh, listen to this guy talking, and it was strange because he had this kind of aura about him. And he would stand there kind of pontificating on the world and talking about things, One of the things that he always said was, you know, man, I'm not a Christian, but I love Jesus. I really like Jesus. And I think his teachings were really good. And I even had friends that would come up to me and be like, man, this this guy's cool. He, like, likes Jesus, but he's not a Christian. I was like, okay, cool. I was 15. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I was like, great, awesome. Uh, Let's go to a concert. Um, but he would say this stuff, and people would latch on to it. And then when we come back to 1 John, the only problem with that is that John doesn't really give us that option at all. There's no real option to have the good teacher, Jesus, that we just kind of like, and some guy who stands outside of a punk rock show talking about it. Because for John, who witnessed Jesus and would have been killed if he said that Jesus was the Messiah. He is either the Savior of the world or he's not. He's either the Messiah or he's not. He either lives in you or he doesn't. And there's no room for this kind of good teacher or even sort of moralism that surrounds Jesus. There is only Jesus who was crucified and resurrected. There's only a king who sits at the right hand of the Father. And there's only Jesus who made the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. And so you can't just have some guy who teaches good things, because there's a lot of people that do that. But there's only one person that sacrificed himself for all of us. And I say it again because it's so important, but if you're able to respond to the Holy Spirit, and if you're willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, then there is assurance to be found in that. If you're willing to do that, then you stand with the apostles in attesting to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. In some instances, that might put your own life at risk, depending upon what situation you're in. But you'd have to be willing to take that. 
as we continue, John tells us um, in 4, 17 and 18. This is how love is made complete among us, that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So having assurance in God's love means that we can move forward in this life without fear of God's judgment. John says that we're supposed to be like Jesus in this world. Jesus' ministry was always about doing the will of the Father, and that eventually led him to the cross where he died, and he took on the judgment that was owed the world, owed to us, as evidenced by John's statements about Jesus being the Savior. And now God's people are called to be like Jesus, which means that we too are called to do the will of the Father and to be guided by Jesus' command to love God and to love our brothers and our sisters. To lay down our lives out of love for God and in love for our brothers and sisters. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, we were once ungodly messes. We were once an anathema to God. And God did what he didn't have to do out of love for us. You know, sometimes I feel like we think that we're entitled to God's grace. And we feel like God had to do what he did, right? He didn't have to do it. But he did send Jesus to die. He could have just ignored us. He could have just said, it's my prerogative that nothing happens. I am the creator of this universe. But he did not do that. He sent his son to take on the ungodly mess, sent him to a place that he didn't deserve to be, to a people that wouldn't love him, to take on punishment for them. And as a result, our lives should be devoted, if we're going to be like Jesus to the world, to loving those who are weak and undeserving and not worthy, as Christ did for us. But, Jesus also says in Matthew 5, 43-45, You have heard it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So then Jesus adds yet another layer onto this love, not limiting it to the downtrodden and the broken, but also throwing in those who are to be regarded as enemies. And when I was putting this teaching together, when we were talking on Tuesday about what we were going to do with the service, I asked the obvious question, who's my brother, who's my sister? Everyone asks that. Nicodemus asked it in the Bible, but we ask it. And we're tempted to put a limit on who that person is. And Jesus' answer is everyone. Jesus 
loved us when we were enemies. Jesus loved us when we were unholy messes, when we were broken. He loves us now in spite of who we are, but he loves us because of who we are. It's strange. And when John says that we're supposed to be like Jesus to the world, that means that we're to love those who would otherwise be considered our enemies. If we love our brothers and our sisters, that's how we're to be like Jesus, both to those who are inside of these walls and to those who are outside of these walls. It won't be comfortable, we won't like it, but it's what we're called to do. Paul continues in Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God saw us in the midst of our sin and still Christ died for us. We are called to lay aside our lives in honor of God, but also as a means to show our love to one another, to our brothers, to our sisters. As I read in the beginning, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that. And then this portion gets a little bit interesting because John goes an interesting direction. In verse 18, he says that we're not to fear God's judgment as a result of the love that God has for us. So, a lot of you know that I work in radio. I used to work for a Bible call-in question and answer show a long time ago. And we used to get a lot of calls on very specific verses. A lot of times, I would say well-meaning and... I don't know, um, well-meaning people would call in that were actually probably the most devoted people. And they were terrified that they had blasphemed the Spirit or gone too far or done something wrong. It's never the guy that actually has done that that calls into the radio show. It's usually the person who's very far away. But we'd have these people that would call in and they were terrified. Because they would read a verse and they didn't fully understand it. I mean, some verses are like that. They feel like the dark corners of the Bible, almost like a dark forest. You're like, I'm not sure I want to go in there. Something bad could happen. And when it came to Hebrews 10, that was one of them. Man, I would screen the calls and I would get someone to call in and they would ask about Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. And I'd be like, I'd just write Hebrews 10 on the thing. And, And the guy knew. He didn't even have to question, like, Okay, we're going there. But for the point of our message tonight, I think it kind of illustrates something that we can pull from it. It is a terrifying verse. I I think I called in about this when I was like 18. So Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ugh. You can see why people would call in about that, because they'd be afraid. They were the ones, they would be like, did I do this? So let me be clear with you about what these verses aren't saying. The author of Hebrews is not saying that you'll eventually get to the place where you're not going to be sinning. Never going to happen. You will always deal with sin until you die. Just how it is. But then the question comes, if you're more of a pragmatic person, you start to say to yourself, well, aren't my sins deliberate? Don't I know the gospel? Don't I know the answer to these questions? I mean, and the answer is kind of yes and no, but it's not as black and white as you want it to be. See, in the verse, he's talking about people who have hearts that refuse to repent and turn away from their sin. I mean, trust me, you will struggle with sin. It's a thing. It's going to happen. And that's why we rely on the grace of God and the blood of Jesus to cover up our sins. But the author of Hebrews adequately points out that those who trample on the sacrifice of God and the grace of God by their stubbornness, by their unwillingness to repent, then fear is the only thing they have, even if they don't know it right now. See, the message that 1 John has for us is that there's no reason to fear because God's perfect love has taken any fear and put it to rest. If you have the Spirit, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior, if you confess that he is the Son of God, then you will no longer be a slave to the fear of God's consuming fire. Now, this in no way negates the fact that we're to fear God. We are. But it puts that fear into perspective We get to rely on the finished work of Jesus on the cross through the faith that we have in him. In Ephesians, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is one of the ways I think the church kind of fails or has failed in the past. We're getting better at it, I think. Um, But for so long and too long, A lot of people were taught that they just had to run away from God. They had to operate out of this place of fear because God was out to get them. And that's so far from the truth. If you read 1 John, God wants nothing more for us as Christians than to be bold, to rely on his love. And Paul echoes this sentiment in Romans 8, 35 through 39, talking about the love of God. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that God in Jesus Christ, or the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Very powerful. So John continues, and he says that as we begin to see the result of the love of God, we'll get to understand what that looks like in our lives. In verses 19 through 21, John says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. That might be one of the call-in verses too. Uh, For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So he says that we love because God loved us first. So our love gets to be the result of God's love. God's love is given to us, and then we're able to respond to that love by loving others. So it's just one big Jumble pile of love. John started this portion of scripture, and Nick talked about it last week in verse 7 by saying, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. So if love comes from God, then loving one another will be a direct outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives, showing us the areas where we need help and allowing us to fall back on the love of God. And then John gives us really practical insight. He says, how can you love God who you haven't seen if you can't even find a way to love the very people who are right in front of you every day? In today's world, we've been so successful at hiding people, whether it's online, in our own families, in the streets of Tucson, There are whole contingencies of people that we refuse to see. And it makes it easier for us to justify ourselves in what we are doing by doing that. We often refuse to see them as people, but merely the ones on the other side. Or this group that I don't like. Especially if we're talking politically now. Everything's so messed up. I mean, we love watching those videos of the troops coming home and surprising their kids or their dogs nowadays. And we cry. But we also like to watch videos where people annihilate each other and eviscerate each other with an argument or a point of view or something. No matter what side of the political aisle you're on, there are things that you could find and see that would feed into all of the things that you want to make someone else be someone that you can hide away. I mean, why don't you think these headline writers ever say, you know, here's an intelligent discussion between two dissenting points of view. They have no reason to. You wouldn't want to click on that. There's no reason to. They had that back in the day. Not now. Um... 
And in the real world that we live in, we live vicariously through this stuff. And in the process, we become incapable of having just even conversations with people that we might otherwise like, dare I say, love, because we want to eviscerate and we want to annihilate them. Maybe not like in real life, but with our words and with our actions. We want to do that. But the reality of what John's asking us to do is to live vicariously through God's love. When he says, let us love one another because love comes from God. It's the same thing, just not corrupted by what we've done to it. See, I'm not innocent in all this. I used to be like a bounty hunter on the internet, roaming around, getting in arguments. Hmm but it spilled over into my personal life and it affected me. Remember one time I was at a party with this, was it a party? It wasn't a party. It was something. It was a wholesome gathering. And I got into a discussion with someone about politics and it turned into an insult match. And this person walked away and they were crying. And I'm not like the best guy with words. Like this stuff's fine because I can like really think about things. But every now and then I can find the words to say that will just kind of stab you in the heart. And it's brutal. And after I said them, I couldn't take them back. I just wanted so much to be like, no, I didn't mean it. And the person was crying and they left. And right when I said it, I knew, I was like, I know this is, I've just defiled somebody. I've just taken someone who contains the spirit of God and for no reason really, other than I wanted to get my point of view across to them, I essentially just defiled them. They're not human to me, it's just an argument. And I remember being crushed because I also remember thinking, oh, and I also made God look pretty bad too. I took one of God's creations and hurt it. And I'm also giving God a bad name in the process. That's really encouraging. And then, about 10 years later, I ran into this person. And I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't recognize them because we were older. And it was strange because I felt so bad still. I had thought about it so much. And I was like, I got to say I'm sorry to this person. This is so tough. I don't want to do this, but I have to. Um, And so eventually I worked up the courage to say sorry. And so I went up to them and I said, look, I was in my early 20s. I was a different person then, you know, and I'm sorry that I did that to you. And God allowed me to have redemption. It was actually really cool. Um, But it all had to happen because I refused to give love when I should have. And John says, how can you love God if you don't love your brother and sisters who are right in front of you? Every day we get to see people, right? Yet, it's impossible for you to love God if you can't love people. Thankfully, that love comes from God. So 
it makes it a little bit better. You see, all it takes for us is to put someone in a category that's not deserving of love for some reason, and we're able to just justify our unhealthy desires all over. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus' cast of characters, his merry men, his disciples, they're all over the map. They didn't all agree with each other. You can see some of the arguments in the Bible, often petty. But when they found themselves in the room with Jesus before he died, there was something equalizing about the God of the universe washing the feet, and Nick talked about this last week, of the tax collector, and washing the feet of the zealot, and washing the feet of the betrayer, and then sitting down and eating with these people. See, the church, both this church and the big C church all around, the bride of Christ as a whole, has a real opportunity, I believe, right now. Because there's a lot of people who, as the fabric of society kind of tears a bit, are looking for love. And we could really be a beacon in the midst of ugliness if we wanted to. The opportunity before us tonight, though, is to come to the table, all of us, with a bunch of other people. We may not agree on everything. There may be disagreements between us about little things, but we have the opportunity to come and eat, um, knowing that we agree on at least one thing, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that he saved us through love. That God is a God who keeps his promises. And that the Holy Spirit is working in us. And that we're reliant and can rely on the work of God. We have the opportunity to come together bound by love. Knowing that we're willing to sacrifice our lives for each other. So if you find that you have an issue between you or a brother or sister in Christ, before you come to the table tonight, before you take communion, um, talk to that person. There it is. And, and figure it out, because that's so important. Uh, we come to the table each week to remember all that Jesus did for us in giving up his body on the cross in having it broken for us and spilling out his blood. The bread represents his body and the blood, uh, the wine represents his blood. But it's so encouraging that all of us, different people, get to come together and get to take part in this together under one banner, unity in Jesus. I'm going to pray for us and then we can come together and eat Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much that you sent your Son to die for us, that he is our Savior, that we can join in and attest to the fact that he is God with the apostles, that we can risk our own lives if it means that, that we can do what we need to do to love each other. Help us to rely on you for our love of each other. Help us to do it well. We need it. 
We so desperately want you, and we want more of you tonight as we worship. Thank you so much. Um, In Jesus' name, amen.